0: good morning. Thank you. It's certainly good to see everyone here this morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. We are going to be studying out of Revelation chapter 10 this morning, but we need to begin first in Revelation chapter 1 to get some of the background info, to refocus our minds. It's been a couple months since we've been here, but I've purposely left off for a reason. But now it's time that we come back to study. In Revelation, we really need to understand chapter 1 in its entirety because it sets the tone for the rest of the book in order for us to understand the rest of the book. You need to understand a certain, a few things there, as well as what's taken place at the time when John is being given this And what is going on with the church. In chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 read that with me. He says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one. "...who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near." Three things in particular here out of chapter 1, 4 actually, that we really need to see in order to uh, get ready for our study today. First is this phrase, soon. Soon take place that we see right out of verse 1. These things that are being revealed to John... ...are going to be taking place in the time at which that first century church that he delivers them to... ...those things are going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Yes, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. But prophecy can still be prophecy and already be fulfilled. You think about tons of prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus in particular, right? Talking about the things, the way that he would suffer, the things that he would do. All of those were prophecy, yes, yes but they were fulfilled, done, completed in the person of Jesus, were they not? Yes. You think also Matthew 16, uh, 13 or 16, 18, excuse me, when Jesus says that I will build my church, that's a prophecy. Has the church already been established? Yes, that prophecy has been fulfilled. Revelation is a prophecy, but it has already been fulfilled. We see this in verse one. We the end of verse 3 when he says, for the time is near. You also see it in chapter 22, verse 6, and in chapter 22, verse 10. When we come to study this, we are not looking for what is going to take place in 21st century America. That's the wrong approach when we come to this. There's so much inner context in Revelation that points to that uh, interpretation being false. John is being Uh, delivered this message, been given this message through revelation. That is what the book title means, a revealing. It's not just some kind of fancy title for the book. It means to reveal. That's how all the prophets and all the apostles got their message from God one way or another. It was revealed. It was revelation. And then they spoke it and wrote it through inspiration. He says down in verse 9, John, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is talking about this certain tribulation that is taking place right now in the time that he's living in the time that he would deliver this message to the church. What is this great tribulation? What is this problem that's taking place? At this point, persecution on the church is real. It is extreme. The Romans are persecuting the church, and essentially what they're saying over and over again to certain Christians that they find, declare Caesar as Lord, right? That's what they're trying to get them to do. Declare Caesar as Lord, meaning denounce Christianity, denounce who you said is Lord Jesus, and declare Caesar to be Lord, and you'll live. If you just do that, we'll let you live. But if they don't, do you guys remember what happens? Many different things thrown into a gladiator in a fed to lions, lit on fire in Caesar's garden just to light it up at night. All these different things. If they just but compromised, they would live. If they just but would say, you know what? In this instance, it's okay. If they just bent the knee to someone else besides God, there's the temptation. There's the tribulation that's taken place. In fact, in chapter seven. Verse 14, again, John refers to this because the message that he's been given is about that tribulation that's taking place, the Roman persecution. He says in chapter 7, verse 14, after we've looked at those who are sealed and those who are the great multitude, all of God's people, this great multitude in particular, he says in verse 13, the one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? Remember, white robes is a sign of victory. And from where they have come. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The same thing that John says in chapter 1 verse 9 that he is a part of. You see... This applies back to this concept of soon must take place as well because we see the setting is persecution by the Romans. And we see that the message is to them about what is specifically taking place. Not waiting for these things to be fulfilled. Not waiting for something crazy to happen. But that also takes us into chapter 1 verse 1 when he says he made it known by sending his angel, his servant to John. Revelation clearly ...is not literal. We read about these beasts and these dragons... ...and these beings and all these other things... ...and two temptations arise when interpreting Revelation. It's 21st century America... ...and all these exact things are going to happen. There's the two temptations. But we already covered the soon. That's not the case. But also... When he says it in verse 1, the second sentence, he made it known. That's your Greek word, semino, which literally means to show by picture, sign, or nod. Another way of saying it is to wink at, giving a, a picture. It's not literal. We don't. After chapter 3, we don't interpret these things as literal. And yes, that does play into what we're studying today. One more thing I want to bring up in order to get to our study in chapter 10. In chapter 4... We see in verse 1, this is when all the the not literal stuff begins. And we're about to enter into the throne room of God. But what John says that he sees there in verse 1 is a door standing open in heaven. Not closed, but open. We get pictures like this and we also see it with the seals that are being unsealed. Things that are unsealed, things that are open, that means things are being revealed. Revelation. Things are being made known. There is access to God and to what he wants us to know here. And he says in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit. I love that. At once I was in the Spirit. It's very much like Ezekiel in the same way. By the way, we will be looking in Ezekiel today too. Because Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation all have this what we call apocalyptic literature. That's why it's not literal. It's a certain type, a certain figure of literature that they study, that they know about. You and I, we, we don't really know it too well. We have to work a little harder at it than they did. It came second nature for more of these people. Whenever they're, they're reading about these beasts and this many horns and these numbers and these colors, they, they knew, it was clicking in their minds what these things meant. You and I, we've we got to work a little harder at it because we don't have this apocalyptic literature ready that we study all the time. But he says, at once I was in the Spirit. And why this is key for our study today. This shows John taking a part in the vision, in the revelation that God is showing him. Think about Old Testament, God talking to Noah. He just talked to Noah. He told Noah what he was going to do. He told Noah what he needed to do. Sometimes in Revelation, that's what it looked like. Sometimes in Revelation, when God is giving his message, it looks like showing a picture, right? Showing, painting some kind of scene that's going on. But this goes a step further. Not only is John watching this like many would, but John is playing a part in the Revelation itself, just like Ezekiel will. We see that today in chapter 10 where we're studying, but we've seen it all the way up to this point. John is talking with these elders. He's talking with these angels. He's playing a part in it. Look with me at chapter 10 now. I think we're ready to get into our study for today. Chapter 10 of Revelation. We're in the middle of, actually towards the end, of opening up the seven seals on the scroll. Chapter 5 was who is worthy to open all these seals? And it was the Lamb, right? The Lamb is the only one worthy. We've opened up uh, six of those seals. But here in chapter 10 and 11, there's like an intermission. There's a break from opening the seals. The first seals, first six ones, is mainly about all this warning and judgment that's going to happen on the oppressor, which is Rome. Not a full judgment yet, and there's a reason for it that we're going to talk about. But once the seventh seal is open, that's the judgment. It's done. Seven being that completed number, that perfect number, it's done. But here up to this point, that's what's taking place. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. I wish we had someone here that would draw this because it would be great, huh? He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now the question that probably is in your mind and is heavily debated at this point, is this Jesus that we're seeing? Are we thinking that? At least now we are, right? Is this Jesus that we're seeing? We've seen Jesus in the Lamb. We've also seen him in the first three chapters where a very similar description of Jesus is there. But is this in particular Jesus? Well, I'm going to say no from my study. Because what we see here, the description is very similar, descriptions of Jesus himself, even, but many times in the Old Testament, we see that an angel or a messenger is given the description of God himself when he comes in the authority of God to deliver a message. Revelation 10 and 1, here, uh, 10 1 and verse 5, both describe this being as an angel. Jesus is called many things in the book of Revelation. Remember, our context is the book of Revelation. He's called many different things, many different titles. The lamb, a warrior, a judge, the son of God, the son of man. But he's never called an angel. So what I believe what we're reading here, this is a personal representative of Jesus. He comes in Jesus' armor, his clothes. Most importantly, he comes with his concern and his power. When he spoke, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. He comes in the authority of Jesus with the message of Jesus because Jesus is the one that sent him. He goes on in verse 4. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. So there's something there when that voice sounded, the seven thunders, there's some message in that that we don't see right here. And John is about to write that. But he goes on saying, But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. We'll know eventually, but not right now. We don't know. Verse five through seven, he says, an angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there be there would be no more delay. No more delay of what? Chapters 8 and 9, these judgments, things that are happening, taking care of Rome, taking care of the oppressors. There's going to be no more delay. Up to this point, it's been a partial judgment. It's been warning after warning after warning to these people. And what we're reading here is God is telling us. God is telling through John the people in the first century church, Christians, you don't need to worry. The enemy's reign is going to end. It's not forever. God is going to take care of these guys. There is a pause right here. And so us as Christians, if we're going through it, we might be thinking, well, God, why not deal with them now? Right? Why eventually? Why would you not deal with them now? Just smoke them, right? (laughs) Take care of them. Wipe them off the mat. Let's get this done already. Aren't you promising this to us, God? And God says, yes. So why is this not happening right now as a promise? Well, I like 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9 says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so with these partial judgments, these warnings, he's given them a chance to see who's really in control and to see how their life really needs to change and be repentant and come to him. There's this opportunity amidst the suffering. But God, our people are suffering. We're we're dying. We're we're being faithful for you, yet we're getting the raw end of the deal. And God says, are you really? Because remember, those who overcame were given a white robe and told, wait a little while. What's that white robe? It's victory. Your mission has been accomplished because you're faithful. So no, they're not getting the raw end of the deal. The worst thing the enemy can do then and now is buy our ticket straight home. A one-way trip? Hallelujah. It's great. And so at the time, yes, there's some suffering. Yeah, we don't like it. Yeah, we don't like it in in this world. But when things are going on, God is saying, I'm still giving the bad guys, the enemies, those who are not my people, a chance to be my people. Will you but endure the suffering a little longer for that? Will you wait it out with me faithfully? So that some others can have a chance. I want them to have that chance. Do you want them to have that chance? He goes on, verse 6, verse 7. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the last in the seventh seal, we have seven trumpets. We've had six trumpets, and now we're waiting on the seventh. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. There's a lot talked about the mystery in scripture. But here the mystery is the content of the scroll in Revelation. It's been hidden. Remember God had the scroll. He's sitting on the throne. Who is worthy to open it? Only Jesus is. And he's pulling apart these seals revealing the immediate future plans of God. It's been hidden, but now it's been revealed by Jesus, which is the same as the rest of the New Testament as well. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul will talk a lot about the mystery of Christ. And I love what he says in 3.4 when he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's a simple a put in Josh's version. When you read it, you can know it. If you read your Bible, you can know what God wants. Put simply. When you read it, we can know it. It's no longer a mystery. It has been revealed. And Jesus has done all the revealing, and he's doing the revealing here in Revelation as well. All right, look in the next few verses, though. Verse 8 and 9. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll. I would underline that. That's just me. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel. See how... John is playing a part in this message, how he's playing a part in the vision. He's not just sitting on the sidelines watching. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, and here I underlined again, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, I've already brought up Ezekiel a couple times, but this it seems is almost another play-by-play that comes right out of the book of Ezekiel, taking the scroll and eating the scroll. What is it that this, this means to take and eat the scroll? Well, let's first look in Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. Hold your place, of course, but look with me in Ezekiel 2. It's a short chapter. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses. In Ezekiel 2, As he's being commissioned, he's seen a very similar picture of God, by the way, in chapter 1 that John sees in Revelation 4. And now here's the call of Ezekiel when he said to me, chapter 2, verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me, set me on my feet. You see how the Spirit's just as active in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament? He didn't just appear one day when the time got right. He's playing an active role Just as God in the Old Testament. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. We're we're going into captivity. We're already there with Ezekiel. Why is it that they have rebelled? What is it they have rebelled and done? They've given over to idols, they've given over to false gods and to sins of the world, just like the other nations around them. They've refused God, they've disobeyed God intentionally, and so here we are. Verse 4, he says, Their descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Try to walk in Ezekiel's footsteps for a second here. God's saying, I'm sending you to a rebellious nation who's denied listening to me already. And we might be thinking, if we're in Ezekiel's footsteps, right, God, why to a rebellious nation? Why don't you send me to a good one that will listen? Why them? Isn't there someone else perhaps you, you could send that could do a better job? Because remember who Ezekiel is? His upbringing, he was a priest. But now he's being called to be a prophet. No such thing has ever happened before. I and mean, we could have made the excuse, well, God, I've, I've been a priest all my life. I can't do this. Where I, we can come up with a lot of excuses to not do something for God. But God tells Ezekiel here, I need you to go to this people at this time. And what do you think I'm going to get done there, God? Well, exactly what I want you to accomplish, God is going to tell him. He says in verse 5, And whether they re- whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's your purpose, Ezekiel. Your purpose to go and speak is for them to know a prophet has been among them. Why? Because that then they know that God has given them a message, that God has been reaching out to them, that God is not slow as some count slowness, right? That he's given every chance for them to repent, every chance for them to not be rebellious. Verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. He's saying it's going to be very uncomfortable for you. You're not going to like it all the time. In fact, most of the time, you're not going to. It's going to be hard. But, he says, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Instead of focusing on these negatives and these hardships and and the uncomfortability of it all, focus on the message God is telling him. He says, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a a rebellious house. But you, son of man, Hear what I say to you. This is the message for you, Ezekiel. Be not rebellious. Don't you be like them. Don't you be like the rest of the crowd, the majority. You be faithful. What does it look like to be faithful in this instance? I'm giving you the message. You speak the message. Like that rebellious house, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. and Behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Oh, see how this plays into where we're reading in Revelation 10? It looks very similar, doesn't it? And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there, was, uh, there were written on it the words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And there God gave him his three-point sermon. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. I mean, that's not a great message, right? If I just got up here and I was doomed and dreary all the time, we wouldn't like it, would we? Sometimes it's necessary, though, right? And so God is saying, take the scroll and eat it. And you think about something that's unappetizing. I mean, to, to me, this kind of message, it, it looks like boiled okra. It's just not good. Uh, there's nothing good about it. It's not going to taste good, right? You're looking at it and you're thinking, how's this going to go down? Lamentation, mourning, and woe, it's not going to go down easy, huh? Verse 1 of chapter 3. Terrible chapter break, but that's all right. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So first you've got to eat the scroll, then you can go speak. Helps us to understand what he's saying to John as well. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll and what I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. Oh, it looked bad. It looked negative, but boy, it tasted so, so good. Why? Because it's God's word. Why? Because it's always perfect. Yes, there are hard truths. Yes, there's uncomfortability sometimes and things that our life may not line up with, but it's always good and sweet, he says. I'm back in Revelation 10 now. I think we have the background and context to continue to finish on with this with John. He says in Revelation 10 verse 9, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Remember, there's two things to do. Take the scroll and then eat the scroll. Take the scroll, then eat the scroll. He said, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Why, why make the stomach bitter? Well, because a lot of what's been given to John and continue to be given to John, it's a hard message. But, but take a step back and let's remind ourselves something. Yeah, there's a lot of doom and gloom and scary that's taking place in Revelation, it seems. But as we continue to study, you'll realize that Revelation is primarily a book about victory, a book about hope. That's how I boil it down together, because the focus in the whole book is the lamb, the lamb who is worthy from chapter five. And that carries on. And because of that lamb, we're saved because of that lamb. We have victory and hope throughout the book of Revelation. I know it seems that doom and gloom, but it's that type of literature, right? We're painting a picture And so some of the message that we don't like to hear, yeah, you're going to suffer for a little while, but in the end you're going to be victorious. Some of that might be bitter at first. It may not sit very well. I'll put it to you this way. We talked about uh, you know, how revelation is not supposed to be literal, right? Or how a lot of things we interpret in Scripture is not supposed to be literal. You think about John the Baptist being prophesied. He's going to clear the way for the Lord, right? Now, is he literally going before Jesus with pavers and cutting down mountains and trees and all that kind of stuff? No, because it's not literal. He's preparing the way by his message of repentance. And so when we read this to eat the scroll, are we literally supposed to be like munching on our Bibles or something? Here's a picture of my daughter in the back seat chewing baby's first Bible is what it is. And if this was literal, this is what we would be doing. And it would be gross all the time. No, it's not supposed to be literal. Take and eat the scroll. It's not about this. Kind of silly. But at the same time, it does need to be said. And in that message that you and I, so taking and eating means, one, I got to want it. God's not going to force this message on me. I need to go take it of my own initiative. I'm not going to get it any other way. I need to go take it, and then I need to internalize it. Eat the scroll, internalize it, make it part of who I am. And some of those truths that are in the Bible are bitter or are sour. I'm going to continue to use my daughter as an illustration here. They're bitter or sour, kind of like when you eat rice cereal and you don't really like the rice cereal. And uh, the one or two times we tried the rice cereal, that's exactly the face, and that's as far as we got. You don't like it. But sometimes when it comes to the Word, it's like those never-ending Olive Garden breadsticks where you just can't get enough of it. And yeah, we did have to swipe those away from her before she could grab them. The point is this. When it comes to taking and eating the scroll, when it comes to reading the Word and internalizing the Word, it's very much like what James says in chapter 1, verse 22. Be hearers of the Word, not doers only, deceiving yourselves. It means I'm going to read it. First of all, yeah, here's typical preacher sermon, right? Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles, yes. But when you're in the Word, I'm looking for where perhaps my life doesn't line up with what is being said. Or perhaps hard and uncomfortable truths that that I may previously in my growth as a Christian may not have been ready for. But I'm trying to internalize it. I'm trying to be abiding, living in the Word. I'm trying to make it who I am so that... I then in turn can go and speak it, just like John and just like Ezekiel as well. He says in verse 10, I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Yes, because of the judgment. Yes, because of the things that we just don't love to hear. If you haven't realized it up to this point, Everything in scripture is not all flower and roses and God just loves you and wants you to be however you are. No, we don't see that. Yes, God loves you, but that doesn't mean that living an active lifestyle of sin is okay. You see, love is not giving an approval or, or acceptance of who you are, but love is taking the initiative. Love is telling you the things that you need to know, the good and the bad. Love is doing that for others, what they need, even if it's not that what they want. And so when we read through this, we begin to understand a little bit better what it means to take and to read the scroll, to hear it, to internalize it, and then, yeah, to speak it. Now, you may not be speaking from here. You may not be speaking from down there. You may not speak to more than two, three, or four people at a time, but our lives as a Christian do require us to at some point speak the truth about God someone in some way. And once you've done it for that one, you know what kind of my, my thought is with evangelism is just just one more. Just one more. Okay, we got one more. Let's go get just one more. Try our hardest to get one more. And then when we got one more, we're going to go just one more, right? We're going to keep going down the line. We're going to keep going until we're done, which that's when God says that we're done. I'm not saying it's easy. There is a burden for the messenger oftentimes in your minor prophets in the Old Testament, which we're studying on Sunday nights typically, starts off with saying the oracle of Malachi, the oracle of whoever. And that word oracle means burden. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, like a terrible, awful thing. But what we mean by oracle, what we mean by burden, and a burden for the messenger is there is a weightiness. There is an importance behind the message. When we understand the message, we hear the message, we internalize the message, we ought to have at that point understand the burden of it, the importance of it, to where, boy, this ain't just for me. This needs to be getting out. This needs to be heard by many other people, not just me. I love what is said in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, when Jeremiah says, When your words came, I ate them. They were a joy, and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty." And because the word was so deep in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, boy, he didn't convert a single person. But he still kept going. He internalized the word. And he gets to chapter 20, verse 9. I love chapter 20. Because he says there, he's, he's tempted. He's going through. He's talking to God about how he's tempted to not speak anymore for God. How he's tempted to not do anymore for God. Anyone else ever been there? I have. Anyone else? Because guess what? It's a reality. And I come to Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9 because what he says there is if I say, he's talking to God, if I say I will not mention your name or speak your name anymore, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary from holding it in and I cannot. No matter how bad the scorpions and the briars as Ezekiel had to deal with, no matter how bad the looks, the words, From the people around, I can't help but stop. Or I can't help but not stop. I can't help but speak. I can't help but get this message out. I can't help but live this message because I've heard it. I've internalized it. It's a part of who I am, and I understand the greater good behind it all. And so to take the scroll, to take and eat the scroll, first to take it, it's not a... Wait till you're motivated to start being in the word. It's not a wait till you're motivated to start doing deep study because guess what? Motivation comes and goes. You can find motivation from several different places, but motivation doesn't always last. So what it takes then to be in the word is to be disciplined. Despite motivation or lack of, I'm going to be disciplined in the word. I'm going to be studying. I'm going to be looking for what God wants, for how my life can reflect more accurately what God wants. And as I eat the scroll, I'm making it a part of me that's so deep in me that I can't help but speak it. And you know what that's going to look like? Look over in Acts chapter 4. I'm adding this one on here, but I love Acts chapter 4. I think I've said that about every verse this morning. I love this one. I love that one. Every verse I read I feel like is my favorite sometimes. But in Acts chapter 4, you remember how the apostles were when they took Jesus away? You remember what they did? They scattered. They ran. They were afraid. They are fearful men. But we get over to Acts chapter 4 after the day of Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit has been given and they've been preaching. Here's the first sign of pushback from the world. In Acts chapter 4, they're kind of put on this, this mock trial, it, uh, so to speak. They're before this council of Jews. And they say, so, oh, looking about verse 17. But in order that it made no longer spread further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, talking to Peter and John the apostles, the, the fearful ones who ran away. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Doesn't get any more uh, pressing than that, except for in Revelation, the setting of, if you do, we'll kill you. But in this case, they're really pressuring them not to. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge... For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. I hope that's you. And I hope that you're working on that being you. I can't help but talk about what God has done for me in my life. I can't help but talk about the church. I can't help but live for him because I know the truth. I can't help but fill in the blank. Because even in the days when there is pressure and it's hard and I don't want to, Jeremiah 20 verse 9, the word is in me, burning in my heart. Deep in my bones. Can't help. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we desperately want you to be one. But if you're here and you are a Christian, you haven't been living as you should, or you do want to know more about the word and you do want to get more deeper into study, we want to help you in every single way that we can. We want to be there studying with you. We want to help guide you in that so that you can guide and lead others. And show what it means to really live for Christ and to really speak for Christ. If you need to respond in any way this morning, let us know as we stand together and sing.
1: Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with Him? him bear your burden carry all your load let him have his way with thee his power can make you what you ought to be his blood can cleanse your heart and make you free his love can fill your soul and you will see it best For him to have his way with thee. Would you have him make you free and follow at his call? Would you know the peace that comes by giving all? Would you have him save you so that you may never call? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. Would you in his kingdom find a place of constant rest? Would you prove him true in providential tests? Would you in his service labor always at your best? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul, and you will see it best. For him to have his way with thee. Please be seated. To prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, we'll sing number 682. Just flip your page backwards and we'll be there. 682. Lead me to Calvary. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me lead me to Calvary show me the tomb where thou wast laid tenderly mourned and well angels in robes of light arrayed guarded thee thou thou slept lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Let me, like Mary through the gloom, come with a gift to thee. Show me now the empty tomb. Lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. May I be willing, Lord, to bear Daily my cross for thee Even thy cup of grief to share Thou hast borne all for me Lest I forget Gethsemane Lest I forget thine agony Lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this memorial feast that we're about to partake of that reminds us of the sacrifice Jesus made in our behalf. He took our sins in his body and went to the cross and there, paid the debt that we owed. We're so thankful, Father, that we have this memorial, that we can have fellowship with you. And we are son Jesus Christ, and the fellowship in the body that He sacrificed for us. We pray that as we partake of this, that we will do it in a worthy manner. It's in the name of Christ. We pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to come together and, and have this feast. Lord, bless this uh, fruit of the vine that represents the blood that was shed on the, the cross. Be with us as we partake it. We do it in a manner of pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.